X-rays, ultrasounds, and CT scans have touched the lives of almost every patient during their treatment journey. In this episode, we will do a deep dive into the world of medical imaging, breaking down complex concepts into easy-to-understand terms. We'll explore how medical imaging is used to not only help patients, but also drive scientific advancements. Finally, we'll also delve into how artificial intelligence is currently used in the field and how it might impact the future of medical imaging going forward. Before we dive into today's episode, we would like to acknowledge that here in Toronto, we are on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. My name is Belinda. And I'm Sumi. Welcome to episode 116 of the Raw Talk podcast. So Sumi, when was the last time you had any imaging done? Hmm. I actually had some scans done recently to check on my ACL that I've torn in the past. I think they were x-rays. Or actually, maybe maybe an MRI. Or maybe both. I can't seem to remember the difference. Oh well, that's okay. Luckily, we have an expert here with us today to help us out. That's right. Dr. Trevor McKee is an esteemed expert in the field of medical imaging. He is CEO and co-founder of a startup called Pathomics and an adjunct lecturer at the University of Toronto. Dr. McKee will guide us through the first principles of what medical imaging truly entails, including the different types of imaging techniques used in clinical, academic, and industrial settings. So uh, maybe starting at with the clinical space, because that might be where people are most familiar. So, you know, if you have a broken bone, you might get an x-ray, right? And so that's a two-dimensional um, uh, image taken with x-rays that um, shows, you know, shows uh, where the fracture is. Um, uh, when you, uh, so um, uh, computer tomography is a special type of x-ray imaging where um, you take a series of x-rays um, in, in sort of a loop around a patient or around a particular um, uh, uh, patient feature and and that allow you use uh, tomographic reconstruction to create actually a three-dimensional image um, of of that patient or or uh, if you're doing uh, research of that of that model that mouse model or uh, animal model that, that you're looking at um, and CT has uh, has the advantage that you can get very very nice resolution of um, you know of, of hard uh, structures so bones, um, it's it's got very good resolution for for sort of bones. It's less good at soft tissue imaging. So um, if you wanted to see you know a particular one tissue apart from another tissue, um, uh, because CT um, the the attenuation of the X rays is mostly based on atomic number. Um, the calcium in your bones has a higher atomic number than carbon, and so um, that's what gives the contrast. Okay, so it seems that CT scans are helpful for imaging hard tissues. What type of imaging do we use for soft tissues like muscle and fat? If you're looking at being able to discriminate soft tissues, you're going to use uh, MRI. And so MRI uses uh, high-intensity magnets to, as well as kind of uh, changing to change the, f the frequency of the spins of the protons within your tissues and protons in, you know, mostly protons in water, and those will... Um, 
but different protons and different, different tissues are going to have different characteristics. And, and so you can get a very high resolution view of soft tissues using MRI and be able to distinguish, you know, a brain tissue from, from fluid, from skin, from um, other uh, uh, tissue types. And so, so when you're getting an MRI, you know, usually that's, that's looking at changes in, in soft tissue. MRI is, is very useful again, but, it, but it's sometimes challenging to be able to look at um, specific, you know, molecules, or if you wanted to uh, understand what's happening within a tissue on a molecular level, um, let's say with uh, uptake of glucose, for example, um, that might be something that would be hard to image with MRI, but can do that with, um, with another type of imaging called PET imaging or positron emission tomography. It's clear that medical imaging techniques are numerous and diverse, but what do they actually look like in real life? How are these images, combined with other medical tools, used to diagnose a condition or used to study diseased tissues in research? We had the privilege of speaking to Dr. Michael McInnes, an expert cardiothoracic radiologist at UHN. Dr. McInnes would shed light on the practical uses of medical imaging in clinical settings and provide valuable insights into how these imaging techniques are utilized to deliver optimal patient care. It's hard to summarize in one line, but patients um, encounter medical imaging at some point in their treatment, nearly all patients do, whether it's an x-ray or an ultrasound or a CT. And um, the radiologist is present throughout uh, that entire process in terms of helping the clinician choose the appropriate test. And then once the test is performed, uh, interpreting the results of that test and uh, interpreting it in the context of the specific patient and their uh, clinical history. And then the radiologist has a role in communicating the result of that test to the referring physician or to the patient themselves making sure that the uh, diagnosis or important findings are communicated, but also it involves multidisciplinary discussions or meetings with clinicians to make diagnoses and come up with management. And then many of us have some administrative tasks. And for me, a lot of that is to do with lung cancer screening. And so you fit in the admin meetings kind of during your day when you can. So it's hard to summarize in one kind of line what a radiologist does um, and certainly General radiologists may do even more varied tasks because I'm only a chest guy. Uh, but that's a kind of a snippet of what I do. During our conversation with Dr. McInnes, we learned about the diverse nature of a radiologist's daily routine, with a large portion of time spent interpreting and analyzing various images. We inquired more about how a radiologist might approach examining an image and translating this mode of information for other clinicians. And so you read an x-ray usually just in a handful of minutes and you do it steadily throughout the day. And so for x-rays, a lot of it to keep up with the speed comes down to pattern recognition. You look at the x-ray and because you've done it tens of thousands of times before, um, something kind of clicks in your head and you say, okay, this is a case of pneumonia or this is a case of a tumor. And um, if something doesn't click right away, then I do have my own kind of internal algorithm for double checking the x-ray to, you know, make sure if it is normal, make sure it really is normal, look for things that might be hiding in corners and things of that nature. Uh, when I read a CT scan, it's much more systematic. And if you look at our CT scan reports, you can see that they're broken down by part of the body. Now I'm a chest guy, so I only look at chest CTs, but 
um, all of the reports really from our division follow the same structured format. And it'll say, you know, um, start with the chest wall, it'll look at lymph nodes, it'll look at the heart, the pleura, the airways, the bones, the abdomen, and then the lung. And so in that way, I, I'm forced to follow a structured approach for reading the CT scans because that is how my report is dictated, just as a matter of departmental policy. With the amount of imaging a radiologist sees on a day-to-day -day basis, rare diseases may start to look mundane. But every now and then, something always comes up to keep a radiologist on their toes. We asked Dr. McInnes to describe an especially memorable case he was involved in. I was already in radiology, but going to chest radiology was a mentor of mine at McGill University, where I did my uh, residency. He was looking at a CT scan. I was a pretty big nerd back then. And I was on my email at like 9 p.m. at night or something on a Wednesday. And uh, I discussed a lot of interesting cases with this chest radiologist. And he sent me an email like in the middle of the night. And he said, like, what do you think is going on here? You know, because it was a bit of a mystery. And I looked at the scan and I couldn't figure it out for the life of me. And this radiologist, based on the imaging appearance alone, could identify that the patient had this rare parasitic infection called paragonomyosis. It's common in East Asia, but it's very rare in you know, North America, just based on the imaging appearance. And that night, you know, he sent an email to a, a respirologist who was seeing the patient at the hospital and said, um, you know, does your patient travel to Asia? And the respirologist says, you know, I don't know. And uh, so then the respirologist goes and asks the patient. It turns out he's a banker and goes to Singapore several times a year for work. And then the radiologist says, we'll test them for paragonomyosis, you know, just based on the CT. And the test came back positive and they treated the patient. And I just thought that was incredible. Wow, that sounds like it came straight out of a house episode. Sure does. In addition to medicine, imaging also has important applications in research and industry. For more insight on these sectors, we asked Dr. McKee to describe his experiences as CEO of a startup, as well as his previous experiences at an academic core facility. I'm currently a uh part of a startup called Pathomics, uh, and our goal is really to try and build uh, reproducible image analysis pipelines for uh, multiplex uh, and digital pathology data sets, uh, where we're trying to extract useful information that could be used by the researchers or uh, pharmaceutical companies or various customers that we have that would be um, looking at analyzing that data. Um, so um, this actually started with um, the work that I did in my PhD. So I was uh, involved in a lot of uh, intravital imaging um, in mouse models of cancer um, over the course of my PhD thesis. And um, what I realized there was that, you know, it, it was actually a lot easier to take the images than it was to actually analyze and extract information from those images. So um, what I ended up doing was uh, over the course of my PhD, I was developing a number of kind of uh, uh, rudimentary image analysis tools um, that still required a lot of manual annotation. Um, but um, since then, in my postdoctoral work and then working in a core facility, I was uh, uh, invo involved a lot more with trying to extract, um, uh, trying to build useful tools that could um, automate, you know, as much of the uh, data analysis process as possible. Um, and, uh, and, and that was, uh, I spent a lot of time at, the, at a core facility called the STAR facility in the uh, University Health Network in Toronto. 
The STAR Innovation Center, which stands for the Spatio-Temporal Targeting and Amplification of Radiation Response Program, provides access to state-of-the-art imaging technology for cellular studies at the level of DNA and proteins, multimodality imaging of preclinical models, and a correlative pathology lab in an integrated environment located in Toronto's Medical Discovery District. The center's advanced imaging instruments and experimental capabilities include CT, MRI, PET, SPECT, ultrasound, photoacoustics, optical, and radiation therapy. There I was sort of a, you know, the central resource for a number of people who would come in, grad students or researchers or even pharmaceutical companies and CROs that um, w would have these image analysis problems um, and they would come, we, we would consult with them, build tools, build sort of tools and pipelines that could analyze their data and um, make that available back um, to them to or, or analyze and deliver the processed results back. Interesting. What was your journey like into industry? How did your PhD in bioengineering at MIT help with this transition? Sure. Yeah. So it, it's been sort of a gradual transition, I'll say. So, um, uh, so my in, during the course of my PhD, I was really I started out looking at um, you know what are the barriers to drug delivery within cancer, and um, we were using a lot of optical um, techniques. So um, uh, we were using window chamber uh, uh, models in mice, where we could uh, optically ha have access to the. Um, the tumor and be able to image the tumor at the same time, in addition, using um, special techniques like uh, second harmonic generation, which uh, happens in collagen, but it happens to be able to be a technique that you can use to visualize um, collagen fibers in vivo in, in the uh, tumor. Being able to image the collagen directly um, tied very nicely into uh, a finding that we were finding during my PhD, which was that um, collagen was actually one of the major barriers to the penetration of large molecules um, within within tumors. So uh, we were finding that um, even if we injected uh, uh, viral particles that could infect and rep uh, oncolytic viruses that could infect and replicate specifically within uh, within cancerous tissue within cancer cells, um, that even with the ability to produce more and more viral particles within the cancer, um, we still weren't getting cures in some cases because the uh, virus just couldn't physically penetrate into the rest of the tumors. And um, and so that that was, you know, it was very, very interesting to, to work on. And, um, and then even and, and then I was, as I was mentioning that the, my transition was gradual in the sense that I was, um, you know, I spent a long time, as I mentioned, in a core, in a core facility and there it's still, you know, within, a, within an academic environment, but there was an element of, of entrepreneurship or I, I sometimes you call it intrapreneurship, like with it, you're, you're in that we were like a, an independent business unit within the hospital and we had to be responsible for um, bringing in enough business to, um, sort of keep the lights on and keep keep our um, you know keep, keep everything going um, within the core facility itself. So um, that, that was very interesting to um, you know kind of learn uh, various aspects of sort of business development and being able to you know present at conferences, present uh, uh, the work that we were working on, um, getting the word out in order to try and attract more um, more users to the to the facility to to keep everything going. And um, I was able to be fairly successful at that, um, so much so that we were able to even hire and grow additional people. It's awesome to hear that you were able to hone your entrepreneurial skills within the academic space. 
Also a great example of how a self-motivated individual in academia can always push the boundaries in what is traditionally seen as a more financially limited work environment. On that note, we often hear that academia lags far behind industry when it comes to keeping up with technological advancements. Has this been your experience working in the medical imaging field? I would actually say the opposite, to be honest. You know, I think, I think well, uh, potentially, you know, there's definitely a difference in maybe accessibility for, you know, let's say sophisticated new equipment. But um, um, in a sense, that's why core facilities are actually useful in that you can, you know, a bunch of different PIs can pool their resources and then be able to have access to, um, to you know, tools that might not be able to be available on an individual lab by lab basis. So, um, you know, so we were really um, lucky at STAR. We've got a micro PET, micro MRI, micro CT, um, uh, as well as uh, X-ray radiators, uh, and so to, and then a bunch of optical equipment as well, and then a correlative pathology lab. So, you know, all of this in one in one space really allowed us to actually um, do very sophisticated, um, you know, uh, experiments. And in 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 some cases, actually, uh, we were doing um, uh, work for pharma. So, um, my my uh, one of uh, the things that I started on at Star was actually running a multi modality imaging uh, sort of preclinical trial where we were testing Pfizer drugs on uh, patient-derived xenografts coming from from patients. And uh, and there, you know, Pfizer kind of had spent the money to um, take advantage of, of uh, both the tools that we had available to us as part of the facility, as well as the um, the resources, right, the patient-derived tumor xenografts that were coming directly from patients at Princess Margaret um, that, that were a much better, you know, uh, uh, model to test their drugs on than, you know, maybe some cell line that's been growing in culture for 30 years or something. So, um, you know, so, so there was uh, definitely that advantage. And, and on the, you know, the other difference between what happens in, in industry versus academia that I've noticed is that, um, you know, at, at least from an analysis standpoint, um, that oftentimes, you know, the, the academics are really looking for really um, nuanced or, or complicated questions or trying to get something new, you know, out of the images that they're, that they're working with, um, as opposed to in, in pharma, the, the emphasis was a lot more on, you know, on, on speed, certainly, and um, speed, reproducibility, and sort of confidence in the results that you're generating, you know, like they, um, uh, they, they don't necessarily need to know kind of the second or third or fourth order, you know, uh, 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 part of what's happening in the image so much as just how many cells are there, and um, how confident are you in the, those results being accurate? Being able to visualize what's happening inside the patient's body can provide extremely valuable information for clinicians. With the increased accessibility to imaging technology, these images have resulted in a significant bank of information crucial for making decisions regarding patient management. As an expert in computational analysis, do you think AI has the potential to help us extract more meaningful conclusions from all this data that we currently maybe don't have the manpower to sift through? I absolutely agree that, you know, particularly when we get to genomics, right? Like there's just billions and billions of uh, so much information available. And um, one of the things that we're noticing for uh, is that um, we're 
getting to the point where we can add more and more channels to a particular um, pathology image. And so um, there's new technologies that let you stain for like 30, 40, 50 biomarkers at once on an image. Um, but the, the problem is that like our eyes can only see, you know, two or three colors at once. And so how do you interpret a 50 color image? You, you know, like your eyes can't do it. You have to look at it sequentially based on, you know, a few markers at once. And um, that's, I think to me, that's where the real power of these tech techniques is, is to be able to kind of um, extract the, the relationships that are hard for us to discern, you know, uh, from these, these highly multiplexed uh, or, or these, or from, let's say, subtle changes in an MRI um, that, you know, is an in indicative of maybe some precancerous lesion, but uh, we just don't, we don't know to look for that yet, you know? So I think that's where um, absolutely there's, there's a lot of opportunity for, um, you know, for, for AI to help with the process of both, you know, acquiring the images, um, segmenting and, and classifying the images that are present and, um, and, and, and getting, getting the right sorts of data out that you need to be able to make the decisions you need to make for, um, you know, for, for, for what you're looking for. We had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. April Kadami, who sheds light on the design of AI tools for pathology and radiology images. My name is April Kadami, and I'm an associate professor of electrical, computer, and biomedical in engineering at TMU. I'm also the PI of the Image Analysis and Medicine Lab. My research focuses on the design and development of image analysis and machine learning and AI tools for medical imaging. Um, we focus on the two major medical imaging modalities used clinically. So we focus on uh, radiology imaging, uh, which is one aspect of the programs, and also pathology imaging and um, or digital pathology imaging, if you will. And so what uh, the radiologist or pathologist has to do now currently is that they would actually pull up the image, visually analyze it, and uh, based on their analysis, they write a report. And this report usually determines uh, treatment and um, therefore it's very critical in the patient pathway. So uh, as with any human-based analysis, it can be subjective and it can be um, laborious to go through many Im images or count pixels, for example. So what AI can do is to augment um, pathology and radiology workflows by automating tasks that those clinicians already do. So for example, it can count cells or it can measure tumor volumes. And the advantages of these techniques is that they're uh, more accurate and they're more efficient. As a listener, you may have encountered articles or studies comparing the performance of AI algorithms to radiologists in finding abnormalities. We asked Dr. Kadami about how AI actually works to be able to achieve accuracies sometimes higher than radiologists. Medical images are actually 2D mathematical functions. So you have X and Y spatial coordinates and uh, the Z or the F of X, Y is the intensity. So once you have something that can be treated as a mathematical function, you can perform operations on it. So you can add it, you can subtract it, you can do edge detection, you can do frequency filtering to find, you know, edges or noise. And uh, so essentially what, that was the kind of first step is 
getting our images into a digital format, which most medical imaging is now, and uh, treating these images as a kind of mathematical, um, uh, um, a mathematical quantity, if you will. And so how uh, machine learning and AI actually operates on these images is that it looks for patterns in the data. So you have a, a, a training set, you um, uh, feed it to the model, the model learns the patterns of the data to predict something or to segment something, and then you kind of freeze that model and you apply it to new data that hopefully will detect the same patterns or quantities. What are some potential issues concerning AI in diagnostic medicine? AI really kind of hit the ground running, especially in uh, uh, healthcare informatics or me uh, medicine. Everybody was so excited because it was solving uh, difficult problems. Um, but then it started to, uh, a few few aspects started to rear its ugly head. And uh, I can think of a few um, examples. Um, one uh, example I read uh, was a model that was trained and I forget what it was detecting. Um, but the, uh, the the training data was from somewhere like Mayo Clinic, and it was predominantly white affluent men. So all the day, all the models were created from these white affluent men, and you know it didn't uh, generalize to women. It didn't work as well, or to other underrepresented groups. And so this started to really bring into account that. You know, if you if the model has never seen, for example, the data from a woman, it's not going to know uh, how to basically analyze it correctly when it does see uh, a woman in the testing set. Um, so how you can really account for that is, is, you know, one of the reasons I love doing research in Canada is that we have a highly diverse population. So a lot of the data, data sets that are generated within Canada actually have a pretty great representation of um, all the ethnic minorities, uh, women, and so on. So it's very important to, you know, make sure that the data set that you have in the first place actually is representative of everybody. Around two decades ago, radiology underwent a significant transformation by transitioning from traditional film-based methods to digital formats known as Digital Images and Communications in Medicine, or DICOM. This led us to ponder whether a similar transformation could occur in pathology, and what it would entail, including the potential impact of AI on the field. AI is going to drive the adoption of digital pathology because you know the business case for buying let's say a five hundred thousand dollar scanner and maybe making the pathologist faster by one minute is not enough for imaging departments to invest into this technology but if you could say hey i'm going to add on this ai tool here and it's going to make you 10 to 20 times faster and we can save you x amount per year it actually starts to translate into something that uh, uh, is financially more lucrative. And so really everybody thinks that a, a pathology is gonna be one of the first places where medical AI is used regularly. So for our listeners, what should their one takeaway be from this conversation? So the future is here, right? The future is here. All of those, uh, you know, funny little algorithms that people were talking about that could do this and could do that, they're doing it. 
and they're solving problems that someone like myself who's worked in this space since it started basically um it's solving problems that you know uh are, are hard and um so but i think that uh, we have come although we have come a long way there is a lot more work that needs to be done so medical imaging is not easy to design algorithms for it's it's very complex actually and you have to have deep domain expertise maybe like one tool that works for everything right now that's not how it works each tool is designed separately for a use case and it's trained separately for a particular use case so you think about let's say even just with neurology or neuroradiology how many di diseases and disorders that they have to treat and, and monitor and diagnose. So, you know, even for one specialty, the amount of apps that you have to build would be a lot. Like you couldn't have a one size fits all, like that's going to detect strokes as well as let's say atrophy, for example. So I think that we have, you know, the future is here. It's being accepted by clinicians. There's researchers that are actively developing and the field is moving fast. Companies are developing them. They're investing time and, you know, they're hiring um, engineers and scientists to come and build these tools. So, you know, there's there's big money behind it now, which in order to get anything to the society, you, you need investment, right? Um, but I think there's more that needs to be done so far, we have explored medical imaging's deep involvement in not only clinical practice, but also in industry research and health data management. That being said, it is no secret that AI is becoming a big deal, disrupting tech in many spheres, and medical imaging is no exception. We were curious to see what our guests thought of the advent of AI. Is it going to replace us in reading medical images? Will it be able to make diagnoses and decisions on its own? Can we predict the progression of disease? Let's find out. First, let's hear from Dr. McInnes. Yeah, well, I think at the moment, um, there's not a lot of role for AI because the algorithms are just not generally applicable yet and they don't work with a high enough accuracy. Uh, at the moment, I have no kind of desire to incorporate AI into my work. I do some research in AI and I think it's a very interesting and potentially important research tool, but um, from my perspective, it's nowhere near clinical practice. And uh, last year we published an article testing an AI algorithm, uh, looking at the size of the heart in patients with this chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. It was one of my fellow's past projects. And we tested this program that was AI trained. And the only thing that the AI trained program was to do is to measure the size of the heart on a CT scan. All it had to do is measure the width of the right ventricle and then measure the width of the left ventricle on a single image of the CT scan. And what it would do is it would find the heart, then it would find the interventricular septum, okay, the border between the left heart and the right heart. And then it would draw a line on the CT scan perpendicular to the septum to measure the right ventricle and perpendicular to the septum to measure the left ventricle. And it would produce a ratio. It would say the, the size of your right to left ventricle ratio is, you know, one to one, which would be normal, or two to one, which would be, you know, abnormal, the right heart being very large. Anyway, in that study, I'd have to go back and look for the precise number, but 
In that study, even with such a simple task, the algorithm failed something like 15% of the time. And not only did it just fail sometimes where it would tell you that it can't generate a result, sometimes it would generate a result. And unless you looked, you wouldn't know that that result is inaccurate. And so, you know, until these programs are extremely, you know, uh, accurate, reproducible, and they can be used on RCT scanners by a certain vendor and then used, you know, across Canada on different vendors, different scanners, different protocols. There's not a whole lot of use for AI as far as I see it. You know, every week we see something new or where we don't know what to do about. And if the radiologist experts don't know what to do about this or the clinician experts, you can't train an AI program because we don't know what the ground truth is. You would never be able to generate, you know, 10,000 cases to train an AI program to do it. It would just be too uncommon. One thing that the AI program, you know, a low-hanging fruit for it would be uh, to identify normal scans, you know, to look at an X-ray and say with a very high degree of certainty that this is normal. And there is some recent research on that as well looking at normal x-rays. And uh, that, I think that would be a good application. You know, everything looks completely abnormal. But once you get an abnormality, then it becomes, I think, a lot more complicated. One indisputable benefit of AI is that machines never need to sleep. So we could have 24-7 image reading and data generation. Could this potentially help us perform more tests or decrease the wait time patients need to get imaging done? Well, um, interestingly, I don't think the main barrier to the number of images or imaging tests being performed is the radiologist reading them. Uh, in fact, there's a bit of a disconnect. Um, we'll perform as many exams, uh, basically, as we're funded to perform or as the government will allow us to perform. But um, it usually doesn't occur the scenario where they say, well, we don't have enough chest radiologists, so we're not going to do chest CTs today. We'll do the chest CTs and get the radiologist to read them after. Uh, so I don't think the AI will necessarily allow us to perform more exams. Uh, the AI, in terms of speeding up the radiologists, um, at the moment, I don't think it will speed us up by very much at all. Although you may find some literature that says, you know, AI in certain research settings would allow the radiologist to read the scan faster but we already are pretty quick and very highly reliable. And so um, it will be a tough sell for community radiologists or specialist radiologists to actually use these programs and to actually say they will speed you up. You would have to be, the program would have to be so reliable that you would have to barely check the output because doing it yourself is already a very quick task. We're finding more and more really excellent indications uh, for imaging test ways to improve patient care. Dr. McInnes raises excellent points about how the application of AI in medicine is currently still in its infancy. The role of AI may have the potential to aid clinicians, but unless the accuracy of an algorithm surpasses that of an average radiologist or is able to significantly improve the workflow of radiologists, it may not be ready to be integrated into the patient care pathway. But what about the future of AI? How close are we to having clinicians supervise AI algorithms instead of doing the interpreting themselves? For that, let's hear from Dr. Kadami. Do you think that at some point, the use of AI and medical imaging will be the de facto way forward? Or do you think it's going to be a kind of touch and go? Some clinicians will use AI while others will prefer traditional methods? For a while, 
uh, it was say, said that AI will replace radiologists. Now the thought is, is that radiologists that use AI are going to replace radiologists that don't use AI. And the reason is, is because they're going to become more accurate. They're going to become more efficient and uh, we can start to unlock new insights from these images that we've never known about. We've never seen. Um, so I do think it's going to become the de facto standard um, going forward. So this, I feel, will become like a software based toolbox that basically um, empowers the clinicians to make more informed and accurate um, diagnoses and measurements. But now the, the clinicians are actually excited about it and they want this and they're helping to develop it. And so they see the value too. And I think that's really actually what's so important is that if you, um, you know, if you don't have the stakeholders invested in the technology, how are you going to get it adopted? Right. Um, because as engineers, we can't develop by, by ourselves. We don't understand their workflow, their use cases. And um, so, uh, you know, but I think the tide has turned. When I first started in this field, I worked at a doctor's office and I worked with these doctors for many years. And I, uh, I remember telling one of them and said, like, you know what, I'm going to develop software that's going to read medical images. It's going to detect stuff. And he told me, oh, my gosh, nobody will use that. But then uh, over the years, like I, I fortunately, the clinical collaborators I work with have always been sold on that. This is the way forward. It'll make their, uh, you know, make it uh, their job better. They they were convinced on this. So I had great partners along the way. Um, and I really personally feel that that was the turning point from the uh, especially on the clinical side, that the perceptions changed and uh, it's being more widely accepted and there's more researchers developing it. So research is advancing fast in this space as well. Considering you're one of the experts of AI and medical imaging, where do you see this field evolving over the next 10 years? Okay, that's a, a loaded question because like, I feel like, like one year is like 10 years in, in the way that this field is moving now. Be like what I personally envision is um, lavish, uh, reports filled with worked um, up images and uh, graphs and um, tables, you know, that you can see how things change over time. And um, so this is where I think in the maybe the next five years that there are going to be use cases that are regularly used AI and it's part of their uh, workflow. But in the future, what would really be beneficial is if these tools can help with uh, personalized medicine. So helping to stratify patients and uh, uh, for personalized therapy, like in, in breast cancer, for example, there's Herceptin therapy, but you have to be uh, HER2 positive. Because if you're uh, HER2 positive and you get Herceptin uh, therapy, you effectively kill the messaging system of your the tumor cells and the tumor uh, basically doesn't um, proliferate anymore. So I think in the future, really what's going to be uh, great is stratifying patients into these homogeneous subgroups of disease, right? Saying these patients you should apply this therapy on, or these patients are going to progress to a stroke. They need intervention right now. So really this kind of predictive, this prognostic is really going to be the future.
whether it's going to be in 10 years or sooner, um, I, you know, it's hard to say. Um, but I definitely think that we're on our way there. During our conversation with Dr. Kadami, we learned that the integration of AI and medical imaging may provide more accurate and predictive insights into a patient's health status and disease progression, potentially leading to improved outcomes. With this, we also hear from Dr. McKee. There's a number of places where um, you know AI and new technologies could be helpful. So that that's one approach is to look at you know um, using. Uh, AI to help with kind of the operational part of um, the imaging itself, or or also um, uh, helping to even speed up uh, reconstruction. So sometimes reconstruction of the image, like take going from the raw images to a three D image that can be viewed. There's been a lot of speed ups that people have been able to to use, take advantage of AI to be able to to increase that rate at which the images get produced uh, for. Viewing and interpreting the images, right? That's something that um, either a radiologist would do for medical imaging or a pathologist would do for digital pathology imaging. And in those cases, um, you know, there, there's a lot of active work of um, looking at tools like radiomics or pathomics to be able to, um, uh, you know, extract features from the radiological image that or or perform segmentation to say, here's where the heart is, here's where the lungs are, you know, here's a region that looks suspicious that can, um, you know, assist the, patho the, the radiologist with the work they're doing, um, or on the pathology side, be able to, you know, identify individual cells, look at different biomarkers that are present within those cells, um, or different features of the, of the pathology image that, that could be of use. But I think we're still in the early stages of being able to you know, trust in AI um, to be able to do things better. You know, like there's certainly some things that AI can do quite well. So, so one of the tools that we've built is actually a uh, automated, but counting is something that computers do very well, right? So we've built a deep learning tool that um, is trained on pathologist annotations that will then count um, how many of those cells are brown and um, give that count back to the pathologist along with sort of an overview that says, here's the individual cells that we counted. Uh, and so that the pathologist can make the final decision of like, yes, that makes sense. There's been a lot of examples also of, um, you know, AI, an AI trained on a set of medical images where, um, um, uh, where, where they do, you know, something goes wrong. And then when they, when they go back to look at it, um, what they see is that actually the, um, you know, the, the AI took a shortcut and, and uh, you know, uh, rather than focusing on the actual, you know, um, disease. So, so I think if it was chest x-rays, for example, rather than looking at the disease, it noticed that up in the right hand corner, there was something that said, you know, R, there's a letter that says R that indicates right from left. And um, that was different between two different hospitals. And um, because the two different hospitals had different different um, uh, degrees of uh, prevalence of the disease that they were studying, um, the AI just figured out that even though it was blinded to where the hospitals were, it could figure it out from that from that marker and um, use that as part of the prediction. And so, you know, uh, so, so I, th I think there's uh, a lot of, a lot still to be done in terms of making sure that um, AI is explainable and, and that we, we're, using the right, sort of, right sorts of data and we're using um, the right types of tools to, um, to ensure that, you know, that, that um, the results we're getting are reliable. 
There is no question that AI is becoming increasingly more important for many positions, although the exact consequences of AI remain up for debate. And certainly, AI won't be replacing our jobs anytime soon. For those of you interested in medical sciences and imaging, we encourage you to continue on. The one thing to, to say f- you know, uh, for grad students that might be listening is that there's, um, you know, there, there, there's a huge opportunity for work in um, in this space in general and also um, you know in, it, also uh, to consider um, you know in, in terms of job opportunities there, there's a huge number of opportunities available for people who have a good you know thorough science background um, but can apply that that, the, that science in, in new and interesting ways I think that's uh, always good to remember and and also to consider uh, entrepreneurship as one potential path, right? So even if, you know, uh, and it doesn't have to be kind of the best idea, just some, if you have an idea that you think has a potential commercial application, um, it would be, you know, it's it's a great idea to, to explore what you can do with that. And particularly, you know, uh, right as you're finishing up your, your grad studies is a, is a great time to do that. In this episode, we covered a lot of ground and a lot of diverse perspectives in medical imaging, from its crucial role in patient care all the way to its innovations in industry and healthcare data, all amid the advent of artificial intelligence. As always, a special thanks to our guests on this episode for their valuable insights, Dr. Trevor McKee, Dr. Michael McGinnis, and Dr. April Kadami. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by Belinda and Sumi. Priska, Sumi, and Reina helped develop the episode's content. Belinda, Sumi, Dennis, and Noor conducted the interviews. Janaid was the audio engineer and executive producer on this episode. Until next time. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Thank you.